This is Craig Morris, and you're listening to the Potsdam Summer School Podcast. Well, today we have about 7 billion people on the planet, about half of which live in cities. That's Andreas Kramer. Like me, he's a senior fellow at the IASS. What will the world look like in 2050? If we're going to have a lot more people, where are we going to get all the food and energy that we need? We already have a lot of megacities today. Aren't they already kind of collapsing under their own weight? And what about climate change? I'd like to start off this podcast not with all the answers to those questions. Rather, I'd like to focus on whether we want to talk about this at all and how we should talk about it. Are you, dear listener, really interested in several hours about how the world is going to be worse by mid-century? And if we should talk about it, then how can we find ways to remain committed and motivated and hopeful? Here's Tom Brune, who moderated the summer school. That's interesting for me when in sustainability communities, actually, that people always come up with these red lines and like, this is the threshold, and if we overcome that, then really everything is going to hell. And I, re- I feel like this anxiety of the future does not really inspire me to become active and to, to do something about this world. What we really need is hope. We need the, we need the conviction that we can do something about a positive uh, creation of our future. So does science provide that? Is that a spiritual aspiration? I don't know. <laughs> this podcast is about a summer school that took place from September 4th to 13th. And during those two weeks, hurricanes ravaged the Caribbean and the Gulf Coast of the United States, and there were even more victims and more damage caused in parts of Asia, but they just didn't make the headlines as much. Here's what one of the participants, Ferdis from Bangladesh, had to say. I watch uh, BBC every night to see what's going on uh, in America with the Irma and uh, the one that is coming next. And also there is flood going on in my country. And uh, it feels really weird that there's flood and hurricane all over the world going on and I'm doing summer school in sustainability. But at this moment, I don't think I can do more. I got answers like that again and again. Here's Mahir, a participant from Turkey. Even though you know that you're aware of this, there is nothing that you can do at some point, but just knowing it. So, you know, I mean, knowing is not always a thing that you can really help what's going on in the U.S. In, in, at the moment, right. if, yeah, if my answer that makes sense. <laughs> it does, because yeah. you're saying you lack control, yeah. and that makes you feel bad. Yes, exactly. Yeah. So the more you know, the more powerless you feel. There's got to be a better way. I'm going to come back to that search for hope in just a second, but let's stay where we are for a minute. While Houston was being flooded during the summer school, there was a lot of talk about what that city could have done better, in urban planning, for instance. But we forget that Houston 
was actually developed in reaction to the devastation of Galveston, Texas, a century earlier. When Galveston was basically wiped out by a hurricane, people decided to rebuild a lot of the infrastructure in Houston to protect all of this from future hurricanes. Rising sea level and worsening hurricanes brought about by climate change are now threatening Houston, a city of 4 million people. So now, Houston is going to have to start migrating itself. We have to do this worldwide, and we have to do this practically in every single river system on the planet. <laughs> Sorry, I'm just stating the obvious. Um, yeah. <laughs> <laughs> and and it's, it's taking the evidence to where it, it leads us and not shying away from the uncomfortable conclusions. Um, sure. I think 15% of Bangladesh is going to be uh, underwater by 2050 because of sea level rise and other stuff. Uh -huh. But I don't think much happening there, like to prevent it or okay. to save the people or anything. All right, enough bad news. Now, some good news. One of the speakers at the summer school, Petra Kunkel, says the sustainability movement has reached critical mass. There's no stopping it now. If you think about how many people in the world are actually engaged with sustainability issues, and I'm not saying they're all of the same opinion or walk all in the same direction, but you can broadly say they're walking in a similar direction. If we saw the situation that we are in, in a, in a narrative of possibilities, and in a narrative of um, looking at how many people are actually active in that. And that is a kind of movement that is unstoppable. Mm -hmm. That would give us a different courage. Petra is head of the Collective Leadership Institute based in Germany and South Africa. At the moment, we are often operating from a narrative of fight. And if we shift that to a narrative of possibilities, I think we would accelerate mm -hmm. what is happening at the moment. And we would be more self-confident towards people who are not at all interested in sustainability. You would say, so are you not part of the movement? Mm. Can't understand that. She gave the example of Finland, which has made its leadership in what's called the circular economy a matter of national pride. The next sentence is not what she thinks, but what the Finns are telling themselves about Finland's role in circular economics. Finland is the world pioneer. That narrative of competition and being the world leader was the compromise they needed to make in order to get it anchored in government. Instead of rallying around the flag, the Finns are rallying around the circular economy. But what is that? That means maximum waste reduction and looking at how products can actually interlink with each other so that the waste of one product is actually the the, the, the raw material for another product. And that includes a, a sustainable agriculture in Finland, uh, which with different consumption patterns, so using a lot more local agricultural produce, putting innovations in that maximize the, mm. the, the amount of raw material that goes into a certain product and that gets recycled, etc. Mm -hmm. So there are, and, and then there are a number of technical uh, innovations that are all around basically reduction of carbon 
and, and reuse of raw material. So making sustainability a matter of national pride can help. Should we do that instead of focusing so much on the hard, scary facts of climate change? As chance would have it, one summer school participant, Justina, was a literature student from Canada. She looks at stories about disasters and how they affect us. And climate change is potentially the biggest disaster. Do we go out and tell this story of doom and gloom? Or do we take a different approach and try to excite people and put the fun back into it? Have you thought about that? I, I think about it constantly. Uh, I don't think I've actually reached an answer yet. But I, th I think that the most productive novels are the ones that show you realistic events, events that do happen in the world, but that situate it in a context that makes you understand that these are things that are already happening. So novels that are not located in some, you know, magical faraway land, but are happening, for example, in Bangladesh, that are happening, for example, in small island nations in the South Pacific, where people have already lost their homes. In 2005, an entire island was submerged and the entire population had to be evacuated because there was nowhere left to live. So these are, they are unbelievable, but yet they happen. We are also shaping how the world will look like in 2050. That's Elmar Krieger of the Potsdam Institute of Climate Impacts. He says we should not lose heart specifically because we can still shape events. So we can't predict it, we don't know it yet, but we can, what we can do is to explore um, the consequences of different courses of action. And that's, that's, the, that's the essence of what we do, uh, to, to explore uh, the conditionalities of, of where we are at in right. 2050 and try to link it to where we want to be, which is a different type of discussion. He also explained that scientists cannot tell us what to do. They can only tell us what the likely outcome of our decisions will be. Society still has to decide based on its values. The final decision, what, what options to take and, and in which direction to go, is of course a, a political um, decision. But there's always this tension between uh, scientists basically trying to, to uh, or being asked to, to tell the one action what to do, which by the way doesn't, uh, um, is very consistent with the democratic <laughs> approach, right? So we're not living in a world where there's such certainty that we know exactly what to do. So we listen to scientists in order to understand the issues better and then we make decisions based on our values. But even then, it ain't going to be easy, to quote Mark Lawrence, scientific director at the IESS. I'll tell you how I figured out for myself that it ain't going to be easy. Okay. I've managed to reduce my own CO2 emissions, both my work emissions and my personal emissions separately, by about 50% over the last decade. To keep up the Paris Agreement targets, we'd have to globally reduce our CO2 emissions by about 50% per decade for the next several decades. Mm. I've done that by stopping flying business class. That's a challenge for a scientist who flies quite a bit. Yeah. Um, by, and that was the largest impact on my work mm. emissions. 
by my personal emissions, I've changed to a largely vegan diet. Mm -hmm. um, I've watched out several things like making sure that, um, that our house, we've switched to a, um, an ecological energy provider, ecological electricity provider, mm -hmm. and so on. And so all of those have given me the chance to reduce my, my personal and work emissions by about 50% over the last decade. But you're still flying. I haven't the slightest idea of how I can stay functional in society mm -hmm. and do 50% over the next decade. Right. I can't stop eating. Uh, I can't stop flying for business and I've already reduced it down to where when I go to Nepal I combine it with going to China if I have to go to both I combine them so you know I don't know really how I stay functional that's mm -hmm. where it gives an idea of how hard it will be after Mark told me this I began asking other speakers at the summer school to comment on what they had done to reduce their ecological footprint that's the amount of land you need to create all the food, energy, and materials you consume. But no one else I asked wanted to speak on the record about this. I thought about that a lot. The scientists fear that people could call them hypocrites if they fly a lot and so forth. But actually, the scientists I know have done a lot in their daily lives to shrink their footprints. And they understand how hard it is for normal people to change lifestyles as well, because the scientists are normal people too. I think we should talk about this more, not less, how hard it is to change your lifestyle. Jasmine Honold is an environmental psychologist at the German Institute for Urban Studies. She says we need to understand not just scientific facts, but also how people perceive things, because perceptions affect behavior. I work in, uh, in different projects that uh, do research using um, research methods from social sciences. Mm -hmm. And uh, also the, uh, the psychologists do um, quite, a broad, um, quite broad studies in statistics mm -hmm. and um, methods of analyzing data. And this is what I bring, bring in there from, so, the, from the psychological studies originally. So there, so there is something called environmental psychology? Yes, okay. <laughs> it does exist actually, okay. yes. Which factors do we have to take into account also in policy making um, that explain for example the knowledge uh, the gap between knowledge and actual behaviors which that's right. okay. uh, one of the examples okay. jasmine thus works to collect data that are hard to come by we report things we can measure and what we can measure is then considered important but how can you measure something like values or happiness these things are obviously important, but they're hard to measure. And Jasmine is looking for ways to measure them. For, for example, for quality of life, um, people's subjective opinions may be at least uh, as good of an indicator as any statistics you choose, which, uh, Absolutely. which just are um, combined from very different sources right. and uh, you, you still can't explain why somebody chooses to live there or not. Jasmine calls things that are easy to measure visible targets. I asked her to give me some examples. 
for example, the amount of green space um, access per, uh, per capita or per area, um, the number of bike paths or the, the, total, uh, the total length yeah. and so on. Um, Yes, simply because these are quite uh, communicable and uh, easy for we have the communication. Data. Yes, yeah. we, and we have the data, yes. Yeah, yeah. She's focusing on gathering harder to collect information, the invisible targets. Anything that relates to equality, do we have uh, the same uh, amount of women and men in, uh, in, in public jobs? Even okay. maybe we have the data, they okay. are not used as often um, this was, yes, this was uh, one of the conclusions from this international case study. Okay. She also talked about food access. Is it easy to buy fresh food affordably in your neighborhood? If not, you might be dissatisfied. In the United States, places without easy food access are called food deserts. Finding out where food deserts are is not easy statistically. If we have to go very far for a healthy food market, but yeah. instead we have uh, fast food uh, places in front of us, yeah. we will eat less, less healthy. Okay. And then uh, availability is one thing, but actual use is even the more important side. But this is uh, specifically uh, difficult to cover. You remember Tom, the moderator of the summer school from the beginning of this podcast. Well, he actually went in the opposite direction from the natural sciences to the social sciences. I'm Tom, uh, Thomas Bruhn, a researcher at the ISS. I'm a physicist by background, and I did my PhD on nanotechnology issues. He now works on mindsets for sustainability. Well, I, t tell me how you transition from such a hard uh, technological number-based number, <laughs> number -based field into something that's more uh, kind of fuzzy. Science and technology and governance are really needed, but they are not sufficient to really facilitate the transformation. We as human beings also have to be part of that transformation and our mindsets have to be part of that transformation. The mindset that we've cultivated for the last couple hundred and thousand years is not really what will bring us into a sustainable future, is my impression. I think we have experienced a success story of the of technology and of the nat natural scientifically dominated mind for in a way, um, which promised us a sense of control over nature. I think that there were good reasons to have them and it has given us a lot of advantages for our living and it has allowed us to really intervene in a, in a better way, in a way to improve our living conditions. But at the same time it causes new problems which now we are facing at global level. And my impression that this learning by doing and just coming up with a new intervention and then learning from the bad consequences that this new intervention has caused comes, comes, certain, comes to a certain extent to a global limit. What mindset do we need? I think we need a mindset that's much, much less about intervening and trying to control what happens in the future, but that um, sees ourselves as part of a connected process. When I came to the ISS, I thought science is really about providing the answers what needs to be done sustainability. Now, over the last couple of years, I've realized it's more about finding the right questions that bring people together. After we had finished our interview, Tom admitted something interesting while the microphone was still on. You know, honestly, I don't know what kind of mindset we really need to facilitate this transformation to sustainability. But I find it interesting that you felt like you were kind of <laughs> under, under pressure almost. Yes. 
when I asked you that question to provide an answer. Because I'm trained as a scientist. Yeah, and yeah. You, you ask me a direct question, and I feel like I have to come up with an answer. Yeah, and, <laughs> and, and, and we don't feel comfortable saying, I don't know. I increasingly feel comfortable when I do this in presentations, for example. But as soon as, for example, you come up with a microphone or with a camera recently, I, I feel like ah, you need to have a concrete position, and this is what you stand for. This is your answer. And, but maybe I would like to share one quote that keeps inspiring me um, when you ask me about a future mindset by Picasso. Mm -hmm. It's called, uh, or it's a long one, you can shorten it afterwards. It, it runs uh, roughly, I don't seek, I find. Seeking that is starting from old stocks and trying to find the familiar in the new. Finding, that's the entirely new. The new also in motion. It's a venture, it's a sacred adventure that only those can take who feel safe in insecurity who feel guided in guidelessness, who can be drawn by the goal without having to define the goal themselves. This openness to any new insight, internal and external, that's the nature of the modern human, who, despite all fear of letting go, experiences the blessing of being held in the opening of new possibilities. Are you looking for a new kind of spirituality that, it, that, that says, I don't need answers to everything yet? Huh, good question. I don't know. <laughs> okay, let's get specific again. What does it look like when you work with society to affect behavioral changes that are good for the environment? Ariana Steinsmeier is head of an organization called RARE. So RARE is a, a nature conservation organization who works with communities to empower them to change their behavior to a more sustainable future. She talked about fishermen using dynamite to catch fish. So basically when you fish with dynamite you kill everything like in a, I don't know, the, the the zone really of the mile, but um, you basically kill the coral reefs, the, kill the, all the remaining fish, you you know, you kill um, the spawning habitat and so on and so forth. So basically what happened is that you not only kill the fish you wanted to catch, but you kill all the younger fishes, which are still yet to grow, but also you really kill the environment for the fish to repopulate basically. And so you have a longer term um, negative outcome which you don't really see right now and which often the fishers don't understand. We are working with very poor communities where they're basically sometimes racing for the last fish. So whoever um, has a more, you know, yeah, a way of fishing which kills more fish that day that's important to them. So what we need to shift is to, for them to understand how, what impact that has and also what, how we can help them to maybe more sustainably have maybe a little bit less fish, but longer term. Ariana talked about how what she calls social currency can sometimes be more important than money. Think about it. If I'm moving and I offer a friend 100 euros to help me, he'd probably be insulted. But if I told him the beer and the barbecue after the move is on me, he'd probably be glad to help. 
So what we've seen is that you can, you know, communities are always embedded in a social structure and often you have to understand them to kind of also move social norms. And if you go in with money, often, as you said, you know, either you're insulting people because you don't know what level they are and if you offer them money, is it too less or too not? But also it's often that they feel, you know, it's not a money question often. It's really an, a, a matter of survival, eh? You know, food security and food sovereignty. So it's, it's like you can even give us as much money as you want. It doesn't help us. We need to survive. So that's one area where really the social norm is important to, to help them to make that shift. Or if, you know, yeah, if you come into a community where maybe food security is not an issue, but that you know there's power within the community where fishing is held by certain families or and so forth and you have to create um, a sharing of that of that resource when people want to bring about change in society they often ask who the change leaders are who do i need to talk to who will bring a majority of followers along with them but ariana says another approach has also proven useful creating a group consensus and identity, and then moving everyone over at once. It's kind of what we talked about before pertaining to Finland. Yeah, so we've seen with a, a traditional model of changing people's behavior is that really you often find the key influencer um, in this community and help them to change individually and then see how others can follow or encourage them to follow that great example. But what you often lose is that um, it takes a lot of time. It also, it's not really that predictable um, and it might create also some conflicts in a community. But if you first get them together to understand how um, they're related to and um, not only related to each other but really are uh, reliant on each other and how a significant shift in the behavior to more uh, more sustainable you know resource uh, conservation as well as uh, utilization then you help them to see as a collective what the benefits are so that they can not only go together but also stay there and that's i think the most the some of the benefits we don't really understand if we move individually some might go back to their old behavior but if you really um, help them to have a social cohesion as well and feel connected, then it's also more sustainable that behavior change. One of the participants, Martin, was critical of Western organizations going into developing countries to teach them. Martin is an Australian studying in the US. I don't know, it's just troubling to think that you sort of, we in the developed world can always sort of challenge the practices of other people in other kind of poorer nations and one of the questions that I had in my mind was that do we also intervene in, say, um, the financial industry in New York or in Berlin or in London, where people fly around the world, um, not around the world, but fly on a regular basis, and the impact that this also has on the environment is, is perhaps just as severe, but we don't, in the developed world, I don't think we always ask the question whether or not can we sort of encourage these people to, to change their practices, whereas according to the presentation that we saw, it seems much easier for us to suggest to people in different places that their practices are unsustainable when we could perhaps also be a little bit more reflexive about our own kind of unsustainable practices. Before we finish this episode, I'd like to introduce you to a few more of the participants, 
just to show what their mood was on the first day. Not all of them were exactly thrilled about being interviewed. May I record? Um, sure, but I'm not sure if the things that I'm going to say <laughs> is going to make any sense. <laughs> One participant, Femi, was an architect from Nigeria, but with an unusual angle. He studied something called vernacular architecture. Vernacular architecture is a kind of um, rural architecture okay. where these indigenous people Ah. Normally living, you see those small small buildings, yeah, yeah, yeah. in the okay. other side of the country, okay, yeah, that is vernacular architecture, yeah, okay, yeah, 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 yeah. And you know, right now there's a current movement in the world that we should go back to these indigenous people and try to learn from them. How do we, yeah, kind of save this kind of uh, traditional architecture from disappearing completely from the face of the world because it's, it's in the danger of disappearing totally at the moment. Okay, Sergey was a Russian working in the private sector. So my name is Sergey Pak. Uh, I come from Russia, well, but originally born in Uzbekistan and grown up also in Uzbekistan. I do believe that this summer school is a perfect uh, platform for, well, for practicing your skills, your analytical research skills, which is also very helpful in the business. I also asked Justina what she wanted to learn at the summer school. How can I take this science-based knowledge and integrate it into my very much humanities-oriented study. Um, just last year, there was a great polemic that came out that's called The Great Derangement, specifically on why we're not reacting to climate change. And that one actually posits that fiction authors are to blame. Fiction is not doing enough to make us understand that climate change is a real threat and that fiction has a part to play and it should play it more actively in climate change prevention. Well, that makes everyone who's not a fiction author feel good. <laughs> Her comments drew a reaction from some other participants. Here's Elisa from Brazil. Many times they are showing, okay, yeah, what uh, Earth is done, so we'll move. And how this affects actually the, the, percep the perception of the, the public. Would the media show that? No, uh, the, the movies, and uh, oh, yeah. we were talking specifically about movies. Uh, for example, uh, the day, well, I mean, Interstellar, we, where people move from Earth because there's no solution anymore. So they just move and they decide to uh, arrange a whole new set. And we were discussing exactly, so they're doing that already. So what people are going to think? Like, um, what should they do then? In other words, we can either save the planet or just prepare to go to another one, right? Even Elon Musk, the guy behind Tesla and Solar City is planning to make rockets to take us into outer space. So will we all end up in some outer space vessel like in the movie WALL-E? Elisa talked about Leo DiCaprio's Before the Flood. You have DiCaprio, so you have like a very important person sending the message and showing, oh, this is gonna happen, so what can we change? But at the same time, they're showing like immense floods and hurricanes and everything, so people got scared. Does anybody have uh, any, any, anything else that they, that they feel like they could express? The food is delicious. <laughs> <laughs> All of the food served at the summer school was vegetarian, so the participants went without meat for 10 days. Karen was an agriculture expert from Costa Rica. 
the issue is that our sector, the agricultural sector, needs to be more competitive, but at the same time, time more sustainable. When you say ours, you mean in the Central Ar America? The Latin American Latin countries. America. Okay. Mm -hmm. All right. And what do you think about the vegetarian food here? Is that good? No, it's okay. It's okay. <laughs> no, but is it? <laughs> Karen said that monocultures, growing just a small range of crops over a large area, were a big problem. And Elisa said that Brazilians are a culture of meat eaters. You have people gathering and eating just meat, you know, and I think it's more like changing the mindset. Okay, do you need that much meat? Or do you, is your diet uh, uh, balanced? Or how can we change a little bit, not cutting all our, our habits of eating or anything, but how can you balance that? So you can have a sustainable production instead of a mass production. That's all for today. In the next episode, we're going to talk about sustainable development goals and the Paris Climate Agreement. The 2017 Potsdam Summer School was hosted by the Institute for Advanced Sustainability Studies the Alfred Wegener Institute, the German Research Center for Geosciences, the Potsdam Institute for Climate Impact Research, and the University of Potsdam in cooperation with the capital city of Potsdam. The music you are listening to is A Perceptible Shift by Andy Cohen, and the water you heard was recorded at the Dreisam River. We hope you enjoyed this episode, and if so, tell your friends and share links to the show on social media. For now, this is Craig Morris, Senior Fellow at the ISS, signing off. <laughs>